Hi, I'm Jennifer Z, and welcome to the Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy Podcast. Here's what you can expect from listening to Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy. My true passion is all about helping educate you, the listener, on food, fitness, and wellness. I educate through my own story and experiences on a multitude of topics, including inflammatory conditions, women's health, plant-based nutrition, fitness, and mindfulness. It's designed to teach you how you can become your most powerful self every single day. From interviews with today's top health, fitness, wellness, and spiritual experts, this podcast is a fun and happy atmosphere. So sit back and enjoy some of the amazing interviews that I have with experts and people who have completely transformed their lives through plant-based nutrition, fitness, and wellness. And if you love this podcast and would love to see it grow with even more incredible episodes, you now have the opportunity to support the Jennifer Z podcast by visiting jenniferz.com forward slash podcast. That's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-Z-E-E.com forward slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. This helps me amp up the podcast finding more incredible guests while increasing the number of episodes being published. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Jennifer Z community. Today on the Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy Podcast, I have Dr. Pam Popper. Dr. Popper is a naturopath and an internationally recognized expert on nutrition, medicine, and health, and the executive director of Wellness Forum Health. The company offers educational programs for consumer and healthcare providers that facilitate evidence-based collaborative and informed decision-making for health-related matters. Dr. Popper serves on the Physicians Steering Committee and the President's Board for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine in Washington, D.C. She served as part of Dr. T. Colin Campbell's teaching team at E. Cornell, teaching part of a certification course on plant-based nutrition. She has been featured in many widely distributed documentaries, including Processed People and Making a Killing and appeared in the acclaimed documentary, Forks Over Knives, which played in major theaters throughout North America in 2011. She is one of the co-authors of the companion book, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for 66 weeks. She is the author of Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Can Save Your Life. And Dr. Pam Popper is featured as one of the lead experts in food choices, which was released in September of 2016 and is co-author of the companion book for this film. She also appears in Diet Fiction, which was released in January of 2019 and authored the companion book for this film as well. Dr. Popper is also a lobbyist and public policy expert and continually works towards changing laws that interfere with patients right to choose their health provider and method of care. She has testified in front of legislative committees on numerous occasions and has testified twice in front of the USDA's Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. So I have to say that Dr. Pam Popper is kind of my idol 
And that is why I had to have her on the podcast. We have so much to talk about. Can't wait to get started. Let's get into it right now. Hi, Dr. Pam Popper. Thank you so much for coming on the Jennifer Z. Plant-Based and Happy podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This is always a good time. It's wonderful to share. And uh, I think one of the best things that's ever happened is all this internet activity around plant-based nutrition and health and that sort of thing, because people really can find out a lot of information and they call here ready to do something, which is very exciting to me. So happy to be here. Absolutely. So let's jump right in and let's talk about some statistics because I think that these numbers are going to be pretty surprising to some of our listeners. Today, approximately 16% of girls enter puberty by the age of seven and about 30% by the age of eight. So can we talk a bit about the data? And because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are shocked right now. And for me, knowing what I know now about diet and hormone, it's not surprising, but I'm pretty sure it's surprising to a lot of our listeners. So what is it that's contributing to girls hitting puberty at such a young age? Yeah, and I'll just say this about this situation. This is so frightening to a little girl because I've seen a lot of kids in this situation in my office. And, you know, by the time you're 12 or 13 or 14 years old, you're really kind of ready to start your menstrual period and anxiously awaiting and you're kind of excited about it. It's exciting to think about being a grown up. You know, I remember having those feelings when I was a kid. That's not the way these kids feel about this at all. They're embarrassed because they their bodies look different than their friends. And you know how it is in the gym class. You know, everybody's putting on their shorts and T-shirts. So they're real embarrassed about their appearance. And um, having a menstrual period when you're in second grade is like one of the most horrifying things that can happen to you, right? So so here's what's going on. These kids are are, are being formula fed. That's the first thing. So when you think about cow's milk, it's, it's a product designed to help a cow, a baby cow, grow from 90 pounds to 1,000 pounds in a couple of years, right? It's full of growth promoters, and, and, and they water it down. I mean, in the making of formula, they have to cut it with water because the protein load would blow out the kidneys of an infant. That's how high protein it is. But even so, it's not an appropriate food for a child. Well, where do we go from cow's milk formulas? Well, we go into drinking cow's milk eating cheese and dairy products, which are full of hormones like estrogen, estrogen metabolites, because all this stuff comes from pregnant and lactating animals. And then animal foods, beef and chicken and turkey and all the stuff that kids live on. And and those are filled with antibiotic steroids and hormones. Antibiotics are growth promoters. You know, we've known since 1944 that antibiotics promote the fast growth of animals. We don't have any idea why or how. We just know that that happens. So, so these kids basically are getting so much hormone in the food and, and so much inappropriate food for a human, let alone a baby and a toddler and a young child, that they start to go through sexual uh, changes and um, puberty at a younger and younger age. And it's frightening to them. It, it has terrible implications for our society, having kids at this age, being, you know, having, um, having bodies like this. And, um, and it does not have to happen. I mean, the average age of menarche in a rural society in India, for example, or China is about 17. So we're talking about a 10-year span there of difference. And, um, and it's a huge difference from a maturity standpoint. Absolutely. And then girls who are hitting menarche earlier are going to be 
well, say they go on the birth control pill, then they'll be exposed to the birth control pill for longer periods of time because women are waiting to have children later in life. So mm -hmm. we talk a little bit about some of the risks um, of being exposed to synthetic hormones for longer periods of time and even shorter periods of time, but we'll start with the long-term effects. Yeah, well, even for short periods of time, it's terrible. I mean, the, the World Health Organization classifies exogenous hormones as class one carcinogens. And so they're, and they're handed out like candy. If you have irregular menstrual periods, here's your oral contraceptive. You have acne, oral contraceptive. You have PMS, oral contraceptive. I mean, they, they, and nobody really thinks twice. And if, and if a person asks, if a patient were to ask a family practice doctor, pediatrician, or um, OB-GYN, and I know this because I was on those pills too, um, you know, is there any side effects? Oh, very rare. Okay. Um, they're actually very safe. Well, the side effects don't seem very rare when they happen to you. And I was a person who experienced some uh, pretty serious side effects from them myself. Um, so they're a bad idea in the short term, a bad idea in the long term, um, and lead to a couple of things when they're started at really young age. One is infertility. A lot of, a lot of women who, you know, they, they are postponing having children, as you said, so they get married and it's 34 years old and now they want to get pregnant and it just isn't so much you stop taking birth control pills after 20 years of taking them or longer and you just get pregnant in three months. It doesn't work that way. So that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is increasing risk of cancer. Now, the good news about this is if you discontinue taking these pills, it's somewhat like stopping smoking. Within a period of years, you're back to the baseline. It's like it never happened again. But the sooner you make that decision, the sooner you will hit that point where you return back to the risk profile that you had before you took these pills. Right, because I think, and I have the same type of issues where I have benign tumors on my liver from long-term exposure. And I think that the longer you're on them, your body, it takes that much longer. It took me years to have a regular period after going off mm -hmm. the pill. Well, one thing I tell women all the time, they'll say, well, what am I supposed to do? I have PMS and I have menstrual periods that go on for 12 days and I can't leave the house and I have to change my tampon every hour. Okay, so here's the thing. Let's just think about this back up for a minute. Um, we are programmed to reproduce. That's how all species survive. So women during their lifetime are going to have a few hundred menstrual periods. I don't think that nature or God or whatever you want to call it intended for women to be miserable hundreds and hundreds of times throughout their lifetime. This is supposed to be a non-event. And what's happened is because women are not taught to take care of themselves properly starting when they're, when they're young girls, every single aspect of their reproductive health has now been turned into a disease. So their menstrual periods cause need, you need medical intervention for that. Getting pregnant, you need medical intervention for that. While you're pregnant. It's nothing but in medical intervention. I had a client member um, who said to her doctor, this, did, this happened a couple of years ago, she said, I think we have a profound misunderstanding about what's going on here. You think I'm sick and what I am is pregnant. And those are not the, two, the same things, right? So, so, and then of course, after that comes menopause and that requires mental, medical intervention. This is not the way reproductive life is supposed to be for women. It's supposed to be a non-event because how could we have ever survived while we're looking for food and running away from animals if all we were thinking about is how much bleeding and how miserable we were, right? Absolutely. And you know, the one thing that keeps coming up and I've talked about it in the past, in past episodes is PMDD. And mm -hmm. the more I talk about it, the more women are coming out of the woodwork telling me, oh yeah, I got diagnosed with PMDD as well. And I'm on antidepressants and, you know, I'm, I'm 
doing this and I'm doing that. Uh, what are your thoughts on PMDD? And do you think that it gets diagnosed all too often? Well, what's happened with PMDD is that any symptom that a woman has during her reproductive years, before, during, or after her menstrual period, is now part of this syndrome. And it gives a great opportunity to the drug companies to come up with solutions to the ever-growing number of symptoms. So one good example is um, seraphim. It's a little pink pill that's given to women who are depressed due, due to their menstrual cycles. What it really is, is Prozac just packaged up under a different name so that people think, oh, this is specifically for the uh, depression associated with having PMS, right? So, so this is called disease mongering and all branches of medicine do it. It's where you keep expanding the definition of the disease so that more and more people qualify for some type of treatment. And I think that the list is up to 150 different symptoms now that are classified as P potentially classified as PMDD. And so almost everybody requires some type of drugging based on casting that very wide net. Oh my goodness. That is ludicrous. So, is. so there, <laughs> everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm all about plant-based options. And there is a lot of evidence out there linking plant-based diet with uh, optimal health and uh, regulating hormones and all, all of that good stuff. And I myself is a prime example of how diet alone can, plant-based diet alone can help with uh, reducing symptoms of an inflammatory condition. Um, and that's just because I changed my diet. It, uh, like I didn't mm -hmm. take medication. I just decided in the beginning when I got diagnosed with endometriosis, I thought, okay, well, you want to put me on the birth control pill again, and I'm almost 40. Or you want me to get pregnant to have a break from the endometriosis. And then when the baby comes that I don't really want, the endo comes back. Or I suffer through a pregnancy. Or I go on medication that's designed to just mask the symptoms. So if this is all in inflammation, why don't I try something pretty simple? And that's an anti-inflammatory diet. And the specialist looked at me like I was crazy. Mm -hmm. She said, good luck with that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Or they, the other thing they're fond of saying is, you'll be back. They hear, you yeah. hear that a lot. You'll be back. And, and months into, so I set the bar very low. I thought, okay, you know what? There's always all of these backup options that were suggested to me. So let me just try this. And a year and a half later, I haven't had a flare-up. I haven't had a super painful period. And my skin cleared up. And those were mm -hmm. the side effects. All good things. So, you know, I think that, a lot of listeners have um, this sort of, they don't understand as much about the plant-based lifestyle um, as, and that's why I share this podcast as um, because they're, they're, they're just not given the information from their physicians. So how can someone, how can a woman who is starting to look at plant-based nutrition as a way for them to, uh, for optimal health, for instance, uh, how can they start that journey? Because there's so much information out there on plant-based nutrition. Where, where would you suggest they start? Well, I think some of the documentaries are pretty good for getting people to the place where they have conviction. I was on a radio show not too long ago, and I think the host was surprised at the answer when she asked this question. She said, what do you think are the big game changers, you know, in, in um, plant-based nutrition? I said, I think it's Netflix and YouTube. 
those are the things that have really educated so many people, you know. So, um, so I think that's a, a good place to start. Um, there are so many good books out there. China Study. I wrote Food Over Medicine. I think these are all good guides. Um, the big thing is to keep it very simple. People think they get very tied up. We call it the nutritional weeds. They're worried about, oh, am I going to get enough of this or enough of that? And, and I have to make sure I eat kale and beets and green apples. And, you know, there really is no magical food. You can eat any combination of foods that you like. And um, people usually like the fact that they can have potatoes and rice and beans. These are foods that people really enjoy eating. And, of course, the paleo-keto folks have scared them all out of eating those foods. And that's what the healthiest people on the planet live on is that type of food, right? So, so just make it very very, very simple in the beginning, start eating plant-based meals. And one way to get started doing it, and, and this is something that we do with a lot of our people here, most people are already eating something that is pretty plant-based or close to it. So they like pasta and marinara sauce, toss in a half a pound of steamed asparagus, and we've got a pretty good plant-based dish, right? We don't have to do much to that. Um, people sometimes say, I'll, I make a great five-bean chili. Okay, great. Let's keep that in the plant. Um, then think about some things that are close that you could um, – convert. You know, you may maybe need three things that you're already making that are plant-based, three things you can convert, and then three new things that you might want to try. And there must be a hundred billion recipes online. I mean, you can buy cookbooks and they're beautiful now, or you can go online and type in vegan version of anything it is that you're eating right now or a low fat vegan version of, and you come up with a thousand choices and you need about three of those and you're on your way. That's it. Make salads, eat those things, buy a bunch of fruit at the store and keep it simple and just eat the food as much of it as you want, which that's usually music to people's ears because they're used to trying to eat tiny amounts of food, trying to, you know, restrict calories when you're eating stuff that's so calorie dense and high in fat and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's the one thing that I notice when I'm helping people make that transition is they, at first, they're like, oh, I'm not going to have anything to eat. And then eventually when they make their dinner, I also tell people to switch from plates to bowls, larger bowls, mm -hmm. because you can mix everything all together and you're not seeing that piece on your plate that is where the meat used to be. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're always so surprised. They're like, I'm eating so much more and I'm actually losing weight, which is incredible. Yeah. The amount of food that people who do this right eat is frightening. It really is. <laughs> My in-laws think they're like, how do you stay your size? <laughs> I know. I know. Well, that used to be a litmus test back in the days when I had time to date. I would go out with guys and, and, and there would be one of two responses. They would be horrified because I always eat all my food. I always eat all my food, right? Or, or they would say, I like a woman who eats. And I know this, this guy could be a keeper, you know, but, uh, and, but that's a wonderful freeing thing because I spent, I used to be a dancer and a model when I was a teenager. And so I learned about restriction and starvation as a means of staying lean. And now if you just eat, if you're, if you do this right, you can have as much of any of these foods as you want. You can eat every three hours. Um, and, and you just, you always stay the same size and, and the food can be delicious if you do it right too. Yes. Agreed. And I find sometimes too, though, I have some uh, clients who wonder about getting their daily needs. So yeah with calcium that comes up a lot and you know oftentimes they ask well shouldn't I still drink cow's milk for my calcium and I said no <laughs> that's actually there are studies out there showing that people who consume more calcium are have a higher risk of hip fractures and stuff like that right. 
So what exactly. are you, how, how do you explain the calcium thing to, to individuals? Well, it's fat, it's iron, it's protein. Everybody's worried about deficiency. And the first thing is, let's just, let's look at a couple of common sense things first, okay? The first thing I always ask people is, who do you know who has a real deficiency disease? Like, do you have some neighbors with scurvy? And they laugh, you know, it, nobody knows anybody with scurvy. How about beriberi? You have any coworkers who have beriberi? You know, these are deficiency diseases, okay? We don't have deficiency diseases in the United States and in westernized countries. We have diseases of excess. The second thing is, again, let's think back to when we were, just, just as when we were run, running around the earth looking for food and running away from wild animals, we didn't have time to worry about our menstrual period. We also didn't have any nutrition labs back then where we could say, okay, we gathered up all the berries and the green leafy things we could find, and let's run them through a nutrition calculator so we make sure we got enough of everything today. I mean, it's really hard not to get enough of everything everything if you're eating enough calories every day. Um, yeah, I tell people, try to come up with a diet that, that has enough calories in it, comprised of almost any foods you want to choose that doesn't have enough calcium, enough protein, enough whatever. So stop focusing on the deficiency issue because it's a non-issue and focus on just eating, we call that the nutritional weeds. Get out of the nutritional weeds and just eat the food and you will be just fine. And all over the world, people are just fine, right? Exactly, exactly. I don't know a vegan who's deficient. No, well, and the Okinawans... Well, pe people will say, the other thing people get into is, oh, you got to eat all this variety and starch will make you fat and all that. Well, the Asians never got the memo about starch. Two billion Asians have been eating starch for a very long time. They're thriving. And potatoes are really good for you. 69% of the Okinawan diet is potatoes. And they don't eat a big variety of foods over there. It's a very simple diet. So you don't have to get into exotic stuff. And, and um, again, I just tell people, make this much simpler for yourself. You'll stick with it a lot longer. Exactly. And for our listeners who are still consuming cow's milk, uh, can we talk a little bit about some of the dangers of consuming cow's milk? And, yeah. and can we talk a little bit too about false positives with mammograms? Because I think a lot of women need to know this. Yeah, well, let's start with the cow's milk. You know, people say, what is wrong with cow's milk? And I tell them, well, let me give you the, a short list, okay? It is a leading cause of juvenile diabetes chronic infections in children, ear infections in particular, um, chronic constipation, um, multiple sclerosis, osteoporosis, um, let's see, prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and autoimmune disease. Other than that, it's pretty good stuff. I mean, and that's the short list, okay? To, to put it in perspective, the risk that a man is consu consuming cow's milk regularly or cow's milk products, because we can talk about cheese and it's all the same thing, the risk that a man who eats these cow's milk products will develop prostate cancer is higher than the risk that a smoker will develop lung cancer. That's pretty significant. That's incredible. Yeah. So it's, it's just bad stuff. It has no nutritional value for humans. And the relationship with cancer is particularly scary. I wrote an article that was published in a European medical journal about this. When you consume cow's milk products, your body produces a lot of what's called insulin-like growth factor. And when you're six years old trying to become an adult, it's a pretty good idea to have higher levels of this stuff. But I'm 62 and I can't grow any bigger. So one of two things happens when I eat something that causes me to produce a lot of insulin-like growth factor. I'm either going to gain weight I'm going to have abnormal cell proliferation. And there's a direct connection between circulating IGF-1 levels and cancer risk. So bad idea on this cow's milk. And you can pretty much gross people out by just talking about 
what's in it. Like, and, and people say, oh, I don't know if I could ever give up cheese. I tell them, well, let's reframe the way you think about cheese. Okay, it's full of estrogen and estrogen metabolites. So think about making a sandwich at lunchtime today and saying, I'm going to have a nice slice of estrogen on this because it's really good. It goes really well with that hormone infested turkey that's on there too. You know, so you can, if you just start thinking about this stuff for what it really is, you can have a whole different picture of it in your mind that makes it a whole lot easier to give up. Exactly. That's actually what I tell a lot of my clients too. And I hear that all the time. I just can't give up cheese. And I actually tell them to read the uh, pleasure trap. <laughs> talking, talking all about why we're addicted to certain foods. Um, yes. But it is, it is that simple. And that's the thing. If you pour a glass of milk, you want to be drinking a glass of estrogen, especially if you have issues of say estrogen dominance. Um, right. And so the one thing that keeps coming out of the endometriosis support groups that I'm in is all about the debilitating side effects that um, these women have. And I've gone through it, so I know exactly what it's like. And while there's no known cause, it's uh, said that it could be an estrogen dominance thing. So can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so estrogen dominance is the major problem that is responsible for infertility, PMS, PMDD, mm -hmm. heavy menstrual bleeding, to fibroids, endometriosis, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, um, all, all of the misery, menopausal symptoms. And people go, well, how, how the heck can estrogen dominance affect menopause? Isn't that when your estrogen levels are low? From an ovary production standpoint, yes. But how women end up with high estrogen levels is a combination of what their ovaries produce, what they eat, and then if you're overweight, your fat cells produce hormones that are converted to estrogen in the bloodstream by an enzyme called aromatase. That's why aromatase inhibitors are prescribed to women who've had breast cancer, okay? So your fat cells can produce more than your ovaries ever dreamed of, depending on how much extra weight you're carrying. And then when you eat a high-fat diet, your body produces more bile acids, which breaks apart estrogen complexes in the GI tract and makes it easier for estrogen to be reabsorbed into the bloodstream and circulated. Um, and a low-fiber diet aggravates that because things don't get moved out of the body as fast as they would if you were eating a high-fiber diet. So a combination of weight, several dietary factors, um, causes all of this misery. All of this is, is based on the same thing. That's one of the things I like about diet is that the way that medicine is structured is you go to all these different doctors and every different symptom, there's a different drug and all that sort of thing. And, and there's, we have one drug, it's called diet. All right. And, and we have one disease, it's called bad diet. And the one drug, good diet resolves a whole lot of people's problems. And I don't want to you know, tell everybody anything that's going wrong with you. All you have to do is change your diet. But most of what's going wrong really does get better on a plant-based diet. You can, you can get your list of diseases and symptoms down from you know, two pages to maybe one <laughs> if, you, if you just will eat right and get rid of these bad foods. Well, I agree with that because when I went plant-based, not only did my endometriosis symptoms subside, but I had extreme anxiety. I was on medication and I was able to reduce and then eventually go off of my anxiety medication. My skin cleared up and I just, I, I have more energy. So mm -hmm. I mean, if that's, if that's not enough to get somebody to go plant-based, I don't know what is, but the one, well, the, one of the big things that I'm hearing a lot about, especially with endometriosis is, these girls, and some of them are as young as 13 years old, are getting hysterectomies. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I often wonder it, and sometimes that's like one of the first few options they're given because they're either stage four endo. Um, what are your thoughts on, on hysterectomies and, you know, just skipping everything and going right for hysterectomy, especially at 13 years of age? Well, I think the first thing is that anytime you're getting ready to do anything that a doctor recommends, I mean, this is where our informed medical decision-making concept comes in. Um, unless it's an emergency, the answer is, I'm going to be looking into this and I'll get back and let you know. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking into this. And the first thing is what you find out is that doctors are entirely too cavalier about taking out body parts. Um, we have our body parts for a reason. And I gave an assignment last summer. I was teaching a women's health class. And one of the assignments I gave was to do some research on the problems that develop once a woman has a hysterectomy. And they're legion. The, the, the increase, there's an increased risk of heart disease. and Because people think that once you have children, this is what doctors tell them, once you have children, you don't have any more need for all these body parts. Actually, you do. And you end up with a whole lot of health risks um, as a result of having all that equipment. It's even more egregious at age 13 because what you're basically doing at that point in time is you're making a decision that that child's never going to have children as an adult woman. And that may not, I mean, the kid can't even really be involved in having a discussion about it because at 13, nobody wants to have a baby. But by the time they're in their 30s, they may very well want to have a baby. The problem with doctors is that they're not taught anything about nutrition. So for them, the, the options are pretty clear. We tried oral contraceptives, and that didn't entirely solve the problem. And we tried a couple of other drugs, and that didn't solve the problem. Maybe we did a, an initial procedure that didn't solve it. So I guess this is the only thing left. They do that with bariatric surgery, by the way. They do it with gallbladders. I mean, we're just very cavalier about saying, oh, we'll just take these body parts out without any concept of what the long-term consequences are going to be. Yeah. That I do. To me, it was just, it's very sad to read stories about that. You know, it was actually a mother that posted about her 13-year-old, and she said, well, she's, mm -hmm. she's, uh, she's got her date for her hysterectomy. And it's like, have you tried diet yet? <laughs> just, I mean, it's not, you know, you could try it, and it's not like it, it's the be-all, end-all. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it does, well, then... You can always have that procedure. It's always there waiting for you, but you should make that the last resort, not the first resort. Medicines should be the last resort, not the first resort in a non-emergency situation. So the, the medical system is so debilitated and bad at this point in time that it really is up to consumers to get information and then and then change the dynamic in the medical office because what's been going on in doctor's offices for years we call it informed consent and here's what it looks like doctors say do this we call that informing and then the patient says okay and we call that consenting this is not informed consent the patient has to basically take responsibility for finding things out and then informing the doctor of what the plan's gonna be. And, and here's the thing, this, this is something I think is really important for people to understand, and it's an observation that I've been making for 24 years. When people buy anything but healthcare, they are discerning. In fact, you probably have been at dinner parties where people will say something like this. Well, I told that banker this interest rate was too high. I got online, I checked it out, and, and I'm not going to pay a quarter point more on this mortgage, right? And people will say, I, I checked online about cars. I told the guy the lease payment is supposed to be $413, not 495 
people are proud of their very um, proactive stance on buying things. And then it comes time to, to um, make a decision about diet or health or medicine. And, and it's astounding. I ask people, how, what made you decide to do a paleo diet? They go, oh, my neighbor was doing it. Okay, so why are you taking this supplement? My cousin sells it. And why did you have this procedure? My doctor told me. And so think about this. When it, it, let's just think about getting in the car with a realtor and saying, I'm so stupid about houses. I really don't think I can pick one. So just tell me where to live and I'll move my stuff in there next week, right? Nobody ever sits in the mortgage banker's office and says, I don't know how to read mortgage documents. I sure hope I can afford this place and sign their name. So if everybody would just take the same discerning attitude that you have when you buy a blender for crying out loud, right? Because people check consumer reports and all that. If you would just apply that to healthcare, we could clean up this problem very quickly because a little bit of investigation shows you the terrible side effects of the drugs, the procedures, the long-term consequences of having body parts taken out, particularly at a young age, like what we're talking about now. Um, taking drugs that have horrific side effects and stopping the drug doesn't always take care of it. You know, people would have a much different idea about all these things if they checked into them. Agreed. And that's why I think that this conversation is so important and it's important to, to share this type of information. And I think though, for the most part, people are starting to advocate for their health now and they're starting to ask questions as opposed to blindly taking something or just agreeing because it was told they were told to. So I think that there's a little bit of a shift that's happening, which, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, people are unhappy with healthcare. This is the thing. If you, you know, if you ask a hundred people just walking down the street in front of your office or house or whatever. So how do you think our healthcare system is doing? Are you really happy with your doctors and the amount of time they spend with you and how they explain things? Everybody, 80 out of a hundred people go, are you kidding me? I mean, you've got that, that percentage of people who just love taking pills and having procedures, but 80% of people are very unhappy. They're not necessarily sure what they're supposed to do about it, but that's where these types of conversations become important because I'm sure every time you post one of these, you pick up a few more people who are listening to this and getting empowered to start asking these very important questions and considering alternatives to what they would normally have done. Completely. Final question for you, Dr. Popper. I love asking this question and all my listeners are probably aware of what this question is because I, it's just one of the questions that's so nice to ask because it gives my guests the opportunity to reflect. Um, and then they walk away from the conversation and they think a little more about it. So some have actually messaged me and said, can I change my answer? But, uh, but if you could go back and give your younger self a piece of advice about diet and exercise, what would you tell young Pamela Popper? to pay attention to it because I had no consciousness of it. And, and this is a very important thing for parents who might be watching this. Okay. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I come from a European family and my family, and I'm like everybody, I could tell you things I didn't like about the way I grew up and all that, but I'll tell you what was really great about the way I grew up. I grew up with people who are hard workers. They valued education. Um, I learned some great values. Do what you say you're going to do. Show up on time do more than people ask, be reliable, tell the truth, um, anything you can dream up, you can do if you work hard enough. Okay, I could, I could give you 50 things. And, and you know what? After my early adult acting out, like we all do, you know, I, I, I kind of draft, gravitated back toward those things that, that I learned. As it turns out, we don't, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You probably have heard that before. All right. So, so what happened to me with diet and health? How could I have been such a Slobovian 
about the way I took care of myself because at 38, I was fat. I was eating terrible food, you know. So what happened? I think back on all those years when I got all those great messages, and they were great messages from my family. There wasn't five minutes spent on the importance of taking care of your body and your health and that sort of thing. Nothing, zero. Now, that was not a deliberate thing. My parents and grandparents thought that they did a great job. I think they did a great job. I ended up here. My dad said that one of the nicest things I ever heard from my dad is he goes, I do not have to worry about my kids. They turned out great, right? So you love to hear that. I'm glad my dad doesn't worry about me. He's 89. And by the way, eats this diet and takes no drugs and his IQ is higher than his cholesterol at 89. But, but, um, but, but anyway, that's what I would want to go back. I would want to go back and, and be aware at a very early age, like I was all of our other family values that were so important, that self-care is important, that your health is important, that you invest in it as much as you invest in developing your mind and developing your economic strength and all that sort of thing. And I didn't know that. I'm very lucky I found out about this before something truly awful happened because all day long in my office, I deal with the awful, right? I, that's how people start looking in many cases, disasters happen. That's what I would change um, about the way I grew up and what I would say to young Pam, do not go through your life uh, sitting. I, as it turned out, I sat for the first 20 years of my adult life, sedentary, not a good plan. And I ate just absolute unmitigated garbage without any regard for the consequences at all. I love that. That's amazing. Dr. Popper, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was fun. The best way to spread the word about the amazing benefits of healthy living through plant-based food, fitness, and wellness is to share it with your friends and family. You can do this in person or through the various social media platforms out there. I'm so thankful for each and every like, share, and comment. And if you're looking for more food, fitness, and wellness inspos, please visit the JenniferZ.com website. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Jennifer Z community. And until next time, stay happy, healthy, and plant-based.